I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Scott Polly Blank, the curator of life sciences of the Alice Springs Desert Park. G'day, mate. G'day. How are you going, guys? Yeah, very well. Good. We're here sitting in the West McDonald Ranges in the park. What an amazing part of the world. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? A lot of people don't realise that the McDonald Ranges come right into Alice Springs. And, you know, they head hundreds of kilometres out west and then quite a few kilometres east, so they dominate the landscape around here. They really do. And they're rich in life, even though the temperature's extreme. It's an alive place, isn't it, mate? certainly is. It's a uh, reptile capital of the world, pretty much, I reckon. And a lot of birds, too. The mammals are a little bit harder to see because they're avoiding the heat and they have more issues usually with water than reptiles and some birds. So if you love reptiles and birds, this is the place. If you love the mammals, Alice Springs Desert Park is a good place to come. We've got a great nocturnal house and a brilliant nocturnal tour in the evening where you'll see those little guys. But if you go wandering around, they're a bit hard to see. And that's the thing with a lot of our species. They're cryptic, they're camouflaged, but you can come to a facility like this and it gives you an idea of what you might find when you are out and about exploring the ranges. That's right. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why the park was built in the first place. It was built as a kind of introduction to Central Australia. So if you come here first, get to have a look and see what's here, gives you a bit of an idea about what's actually out there in the big place. Now you were saying to me this morning that you've got golden bandicoots. We do have golden bandicoots. Got them in our nocturnal house with reverse night and day. So during the day you go there, it's like it's at night and you can see them. And then we have the night tour that I've already mentioned, the uh, nocturnal tour and they're free-ranging up there and they can run around between your feet sometimes. So what species might you see on a nocturnal tour? Burrowing betongs, brush-tailed betongs, both extinct in the wild within the Northern Territory and only found in tiny populations over in the West. You can see stick-nest rats, which were thought to be extinct for quite a while until they were found on the Franklin Island group just off Adelaide there, off South Australia. You can also, if you're really lucky, sometimes you can see some of the snakes that are here, Stimson's pythons. We've even had Centralian carpet pythons in that exhibit, though we would prefer that they maybe didn't go there too often because they're big enough to eat some of the things. Yeah, there's, there's quite a range of things up there. Now, we learnt today, the researcher that was looking at Parenti, and she said they're using burrowing beton burrows. And she mentioned them going down through the... Uh, calcareous rock layer in, in the surface and I've actually seen those burrows and they call them warrens and they're quite extensive. I mean they'll make rabbit warrens look like tiny things and they actually go straight down through this rock. So here you have a, a marsupial that's you know quite small. It's what would it be probably only about 20 or 30 centimetres tall and looks quite dainty in many ways and they can burrow through rocks. That's amazing. Mm, mm. I've got a couple of betong species, not the burrowing, but I mean their claws are immense just for looking for subterranean plant matter. Yeah. Oh, that whole look, that whole looking at all those series of mammals that dig for a living. That's a huge area of science that needs a lot of research because then you get all those fungi in the soil that uh, partner up with the plants 
to make everything more efficient at pulling nutrients out of the soil, mycorrhiza. And these animals used to eat the fruit, basically, of those fungi and then spread the spores around through the environment. Well, we don't have them over much of the landscape where they used to be anymore. We don't have those animals. So it'd be really interesting to see whether that's actually affecting the health of the vegetation as well. I suspect it is. The soils are often quite skeletal, mm. but that fungi you mentioned, the mycorrhizae fungi, that enables on the plant roots the plants to draw nutrients yep. from what we would call soils that are useless. Those plants thrive and a diversity of plants thrive in this environment. That's right. It's a huge area of science that's really only at its beginning. We want to get a soil expert on the show, actually, but yeah. it's just <laughs> such a fascinating thing. We're always talking about biodiversity, but, I mean, the teaspoon of soil has got more life than people on the planet, and we you know, yep. we, we don't appreciate it, and we're destroying it as a you know, species, aren't we? Well, you've all. got me recently, like over the last year, engrossed into plants a little bit and, and realising that plants are a big part of it. And now you're moving me to soil. <laughs> it all begins. Oh. It all begins below your feet. That's for sure. Absolutely does. So, mate, um, how long has the park been here? The park's been here since 1997, so it's comparatively new compared to most other organisations of this type. It's beautiful when you walk around. I mean, you see that the ranges, you know, everywhere you are. But the enclosures, they're not obvious until you're upon them. Mm, and that's how it was designed. It's, it's designed on a habitat basis. So there are four habitats in the park, but three major ones that you walk through within the visitor experience. So we've got desert rivers, the ribbons of life that run through the desert and sometimes actually have water above the surface of the sand. There's always water underneath, but not always on top. And then we've got the woodland area, which is dominated by acacia species, and most people would have heard of mulga. Well, it's actually a type of acacia. And then we've also got sand country. And when someone mentions desert, everybody thinks of sand. But in actual fact, there's quite a range of habitats out here. And the park's based on habitat. So when you go through a habitat, we actually have a reference site out there in the big wide world that we can go to, and we've looked at the plant species and the distribution and even the spatial arrangement and replicated it here. So all this has been revegetated or a lot of it? Most of it's been revegetated. If you went back and looked at the history of the site, you'd find out that it's had quite a lot of disturbance, let's call it. When the cattle were shipped down south on the train all the time, now they go by road train mostly, the train, as a lot of people know, the GAN, was famous for being late. So if you wanted to drive your head of cattle down south, you would drive them into town, adjust them right here on this site and wait for the train. And it could be days, sometimes a week. So, you know, when you bring all the cattle in from a vast landscape and put them on a much smaller site, you can imagine what happened. And then there were goats on it at one stage, a speedway. A speedway. Yeah, so it's all happened here. So it's pretty remarkable. People walk around the park and they have no idea that it's been planted mostly because it's based on reality. Well, we always comment when we go to parks, you know, like you guys have used local Indigenous plants. Yep. You can't have the animals without the plants and it's always linking that together. I mean, a big part of what zoos do is try to link people with the environment and what better way to do it than to be walking through the environment mm. inside and outside of the exhibits where you can. And we're also a botanic garden. 
And what that means is that if you go and look at a plant inside the park, we can look it up on our database using GIS to find the locale of that plant within the park. We can tell you what it is and we can say where we collected the seed or the cuttings, whichever was used, and we can trace that back to a set of coordinates in the wild. So we've got an amazing database on the vegetation as well. And even as you walk around, you also see a lot of wild animals too, like the long-snouted dragons. Yep. They're a regular feature on the park, sitting in small shrubs. And occasionally you get parentes walk through the park. Talking to the keepers, they've sighted two parentes within the last two days on the park. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> the day when we weren't here, we did get a yeah. message saying you'd yeah. well, found a parent here. Well, they found one this morning and they saw one yesterday as well. But they're inside the park. So that's about 54 hectares in there. But we actually have over 1,000, about 1,600 hectares in all as this site. And it actually goes over the top of the McDonald Ranges and down the other side. So that's us too. The outlook of the mm. ranges when you look in most most ways when you're in the park is just amazing mm. i love the look of it you've got these fantastic walkways that you've created and that but then you've got your enclosure your nocturnal house and wow that's got to be the biggest mm. nocturnal house in the world and and the most spectacular it's just awesome yep mm. some uh, zoo enthusiasts from britain who go around the world looking at zoos classified it as one of the top 10 exhibits in the world I've got to get back and have a look because I didn't see the golden bandicoot. But I saw the marla. That was pretty cool. Mm. You could be, I was sitting two metres away from marla. Yeah, well, marla were common across the landscape prior to the Second World War, early in the 20th century and, uh, and back into the 19th century. Could, so, just be, could we explain what a marla is? Yeah, marla's like a small version of a kangaroo, really. It's just, a lot of people would call them wallabies because they're little, but... So they're a small kangaroo. They, they stand about 35, 40 centimetres high, the biggest ones, but really down around 30 centimetres. And if you look at them, you think, oh, a, mini, a miniature or a little baby kangaroo, but they're not. Have a good look at them. They're quite different. To me, they look like a giant rufous betong. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they do, really. Yeah, but mention the word betong, and a lot of people don't know what they are because they're not <laughs> common out in the landscape either. Mm. So Marla... Yes, yeah, so they were quite common, but then it was realised that they disappeared over much of the landscape after the Second World War, mostly. And then they found two populations out in the Tanami Desert, which is northwest of here, but inside the Northern Territory. And they actually fenced one of those areas, but unfortunately a fox got inside there, and it just shows you what damage a fox can do. That, that population was pretty well really decimated. And then there was a wildfire in the other population, so they quickly raced out there and grabbed animals, as many as they could actually get, and they haven't been seen in those sites since. Certainly not there now. And I think they brought... The, the records aren't very clear. It's either 22 or 24 animals in, and that's the basis of the mainland marla population. There is another slightly different population on islands off Western Australia, but the mainland population is all descended from those animals that were brought in. So there's a population now out at New Haven, just near us, uh, Australian Wildlife Conservancy property. There's still some down at Scotia, another AWC property. There's some at Uluru. There's all in big fence properties, and we've got some. 
And they breed all right once you get rid of the predators? They breed okay once you get rid of cats and foxes. Because a lot of the research on cats now is saying that they're actually taking bigger prey than we suspected in the past. So you get big males, they'll take quite large animals. Like a male is not much problem for them. You've probably seen that footage that's been going around lately of the cat taking the short-eared rock wallaby. Yep. Yeah. Do, you, do you get cats? What predators do you get around here? Well, we're fenced and we actually have an electric wire running around the top to keep the baddies out and the goodies in. But that fence is regularly patrolled by cats, sometimes by wild dogs. We have dingo populations in the area. We're pretty happy about having dingoes around. But yeah, cats are a big problem. Huge problem. You wouldn't get foxes this high? Foxes, not around town, but there have been foxes seen 20 k's out of town. Road kills, and so we know they're around. They're north of us, they're south of us, but I think because they've come through landscapes that don't have many people in them, they're not, they're staying away from the towns, which sounds a bit ironic if you live in places like Adelaide and Melbourne where the fox populations are huge, but they're not used to town, so they're staying away from us for the time being. But, you know, as we know, foxes can adapt and they may well decide that they can live closer to Alice Springs and become a problem right here. But mainly it's, it's cats. I am sorry, I'm going down the bad road of what's been introduced into Australia, but are cane toads this far south as well? No, there's been the odd one come down via vehicles from up north, but no, they probably will struggle to establish in this area because um, there isn't any free water around. Only the Alice Springs uh, ponds, which are actually the sewerage ponds. So there's a lot of sensitive mammals still around here, like Centralian rock rats. Yep. They they still occur in the ranges? They still occur in the ranges, and one of the sites that they have looked for them is actually within the park, in the McDonald Ranges above us. There are still a couple of localities where they're found. We're not making a lot of noise about where they are. You know, they're one of those species that probably always has done this big explosion of numbers during the good wet years and then huge contractions during the dry periods. And so if you get something like a cat centre on those populations when it's dry and they've contracted into their what we call refugia, the little areas they survive in, um, they can wipe out a whole population of them quite quickly. You've ended up at the desert park. How did you get here? What's been your your road? Yes, well, I took a slightly circuitous route to get here. My passion as a young person was always life forms plants animals whatever long as it was alive i was into it so i uh, started growing native plants in my backyard at home when my parents were into camellias and rhododendrons and things like that you Um, legend yes (laughs) and so you know to much to my father's horror all these other things started creeping into his garden Uh, fortunately my mother loved them but yes, I, I fell in love with, with vegetation simply because wherever you go, you can find it. I love the animals when I find them, but I'm never short of something to look at because I just love it all. So I, from a very early age, I collected native plant books, native mammal books, bird books, and just sat and studied them in, in, in my home and then went out and tried to find them. I then went and did 
Botany and Zoology at university, much to my father's chagrin, because he said, oh, that sounds like a license for unemployment. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did a degree there and couldn't get, a, couldn't get work in that area for quite a while. I became a teacher, teaching botany and, well, biology, basically, maths and science. And because I was always getting the kids to crawl across the school oval and look at, you know, Eastern Rosellas nesting in the sugar gums on the edge of the oval and all that sort of stuff, I think they heard about me in Zoos Victoria and I applied for a... They asked me to apply for a job. I did. I got it. I became an environmental education officer with Zoos Victoria based in a place called Hillsville Sanctuary, which is all native animals and has an area of bushland attached to it as well. So I did that and did similar sort of thing in Melbourne Zoo for a while. And then someone rang me up and said, oh, there's a job going up at Alice Springs Desert Park for a curator. And it was the head of the department. He said, you don't know anybody that's got botanical and zoological qualifications, do you? And I said, oh, I know one person. And he goes, who's that? And I said, me. He says, oh, do you want to apply? So I did. And here I am. 12, nearly 13 years ago, I came up here. It was pretty radical, really, to take somebody from my background into the uh, the real z- hardcore zoo side of things but yeah I've enjoyed it every minute of it you know I'm, n- I'm not a specialist in any particular area but I have a very broad knowledge of vegetation even up here already and of birds and mammals reptiles but you know there's always someone who knows more about each of those separate areas than I do but I'm the link pull it all together yeah we need mm. people like you in the industry as well mm. yeah and i have a very ec- ecological view of things i see everything as being connected you know hence our conversation about the fungi in the soil and the the little mammals running around on top of it and then the plants that are using those fungi so yeah i always see links have people noticed much of a difference here with global warming or climate change Well, you know, global warming is one of those things. I I don't think there's any debate that it's happening. It just astounds me that there still is a debate out there. But anyway, to me, it's happening. The Territory government believes it's happening. We've just been breaking records in the Northern Territory. I mean, Darwin's just had its second hottest day on record. And where are we? We're in October. Alice Springs last summer, and I can't remember how many days in a row it was, but we broke the record by a mile for consecutive days in a row over 43 degrees. Um, I think it was something like 12, or might have been 12, somewhere between 12 and 16 days over 43 degrees in a row. And we actually saw plants dying off in town, and I, I could see a whole species of plants that have been the part of roadside planting and they all just died in that week they were all from western they were western australian eucalypts which pretty tough but couldn't quite hack it up here but i don't think there's any debate about it the territory is not this very sparsely populated and so you know our government's quite small and everything within it's quite small so monitoring all of these things isn't always easy so I'm not, I, don't know, I don't know about the hard data. I don't know if it's there. But, um, you know, the models from places like CSIRO are saying that the dry events are going to be longer here. And when you get extreme weather events like the really wet years, they're going to be more dramatic. So the extremes are going to increase. The, extreme, the dry and 
when it's wet, it's going to be you know. wet. I remember one year I drove up to Darwin and drove through here and visited here. <clears throat> it's going back a few years now. And we were having a heat wave in Adelaide. I drove up yep. around Christmas time. It was for work. And everyone said, oh, you're mad going up this time of the year. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And we had some rain. Yep. And the roads were covered in shield shrimp. <laughs> There's all these frogs, which they come out as tadpoles and they're like frogs within minutes just about. They have a small window to, to morph. I mean, it's quite incredible yeah. when, it, when it rains. Spencer's burrowing frog, probably. Plenty of them around. Yep, they, they are amazing. When I f- came across the first rain here of any real significance, was actually not here for very long, only a few months. I kept hearing this little tapping on the window and it wasn't actually raining at, at that moment. I thought, what, what is that? And it was all happening on the window. When I went out, there was all these Spencer's borrowing frogs jumping up at the window. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> must get, getting ready for the rain. Well, it had already rained, so yeah. they came out, you know, with the rain. I think they were because we saw one at Simpsons Gap. I, mm. I recognised him. I looked him up and I reckon that's what we saw the other night with the um, Centralian tree frogs and the, um, what are those, Latoria rubella. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's quite interesting to have a look at those Centralian tree frogs because you look at them and you think they remind you of the uh, classic green tree frogs of Queensland and northern New South Wales. You think, what are they doing here? It's, it's, you're right. We were talking, the contrast of a bright green frog on the bright red sand didn't yeah, make, any sense, didn't make no sense at all. <laughs> and it's simply because there are places in central Australia that are always got moisture in them, always got water. There are permanent water holes. And they're quite stunning. And those big rock figs. I mean, we saw a rock mm. fig just coming out of, like, no dirt at all, just growing out of cracks in the, in the yep. rock. Roots going down, like, you know, 10, 20 feet. Incredible. Yeah, they find water down in those crevices. And quite often when you go through those uplifted landscapes, the water table can actually come up a little underneath them as well. So they just go down the cracks and find the water. So these are remnant things from when the climate was very different. Yeah. So it was particularly in the last 10,000 years. It's really dried out around here, but the big dry started long before that. But there have been tropical periods here, and you can see it in remnant vegetation. One of the botanists here refers to the dry jungle, and that dry jungle mix of plants are basically remnants from those times when it was a lot wetter. So you see vines and things that you associate more with Pandaria. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it struck me when I first drove out here. Um, you, you go through South Australia, salt bush and salt lakes, and, and then you sort of get past Cooper Pete and you keep going, you get into Spinifex. When there's a bull oak, you know, and desert oak, and there's these huge trees in the middle yeah. of just growing in this red sand. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's amazing what they can live on, isn't it? But I was thinking because it's so dry a lot of the time, and you, uh, me, as a novice on plants, I'd think you would only get the native plants grown around here. Do you, do you get many weeds and things? Well, weeds are a bit interesting. If you, It's a bit like that old adage, you know, just add water and you'll get weeds. So anywhere that's irrigated, like in your house or any areas that we happen to irrigate in the park here, yeah, you'll get the typical broadleaf weeds that you find throughout much of Australia. But also um, there have been some plants introduced to central Australia Buffalo grass is, is a classic that has um, moved into a lot of different landscapes around here. It's still, I think, deemed to be useful to the cattle industry. 
But uh, yeah, look, we, we remove it from the park simply because it doesn't belong. And we find when we do remove it that we get a lot more of the native vegetation coming back in. Whereas if we leave it there, then you really don't get much diversity, really. Have you got any future plans for the park? Interesting you should say that. We're um, heading into a new phase at the moment where we're just sitting down and trying to come up with all the new plans and new ideas that might happen uh, for this place because, you know, tourism is a big industry in the Northern Territory. With such a low population, we certainly don't have much in the way of, uh, you know, the traditional industries from major cities. Cattle industry is big and tourism is one of our biggest revenue raises so yeah territory government's looking to places like us to put on new experiences and things so that we can draw more tourists in what those experiences are yet we haven't determined but that is part of our uh, planning we've just been talking about that this week and you better price show can you talk a bit about that so what we've done is we have a the free flight bird show is basic we call it free flight because as much as possible, we try not to have the birds fly to people. There are a few species where it's difficult to fly them without doing that because you can't actually control what goes on. But, you know, when we fly eagles and things like that, we don't, they don't fly to a glove or anything like that. And they actually come down from off the range. When we talk about the range, it's hard for people who can't see it, but, you know, it's far more extensive and higher than anything like Uluru or anything like that. It, it, it is a true range of uh, mountains in the Australian sense. <laughs> it's impressive. Yeah. A lot of the wild kites come in too, don't they, during the show? Yeah, yeah. We, they sometimes can almost take over the show. There's so many of them come in. And we've had wild eagles come in as well. And even wild falcons coming in. We try to make it look as natural as possible. And, you know, you can have an Australian hobby or a, sometimes called a little falcon um, flying across the tops of the visitors' heads and you see people ducking and weaving even though the bird knows where they are. It's not going to hit them. But, yeah, it can be quite dramatic. People love it. And we've always said people love to see the animals exhibit their behaviours. They do. It's a big part of it. Yeah. We were lucky to see the feeding of the thorny devils yesterday. It was pretty cool. That's very cool, seeing the thorny devils eating those Yeah, ants. And, that, and the trick with that is the species of ants, because they only eat tiny ants, and, you know, that you just don't find them. People think they've got small ants in other parts of Australia, but no, not the little tiny ones that we have around here. So we actually collect those, sometimes put a little bit of uh, dog food or something inside a can, just leave it on an ant trail, let it fill up with ants, put a lid on it, bring it up, that slides in underneath the exhibit and then the ants all crawl out of that can and come up into the exhibit and the thorny devils. And there's also a thing called a military dragon in there, which also eats ants. And you've got to be careful how many you put in. It all looks very simple. But, you know, the skills of our keeping staff are amazing. Can't have too many ants in there. The thorny devils don't like to be covered in ants. They like to be on the edge, picking them off. They don't like to be part of the ants show. <laughs> And I guess because the way you're feeding them in there, they're not following a line like they would in the wild. They're more just yeah, they're coming out and potentially running over them as well. So. Yeah. yeah. Interesting animals because um, there aren't too many animals in the world that can drink by putting their foot in water. There's some great videos showing that. Yeah, so there's things called hydrostatic forces. So it's to do with electricity in the skin of the animal. 
that's a very simplistic way of putting it and also due to capillary action so you know when you stick a really fine tube of glass in water and the water shoots up it those two actions the animal puts its foot in the water and the water actually shoots across the skin of the animal and it actually starts forming a drip on the end of its mouth and they just lap up that drip without even bending over. It's amazing adaptations to this mm. environment. Isn't it? People mm. should check that out. That is online if you if you put in a search for it. Well, Rex was telling us Sunday night about some footage they got that was so good with the latest cameras. You could not only see the moisture going up, you could see the particles of soil in amongst the water going yeah. up. Mm. And mate, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, guys. It's amazing. Yeah. This place is amazing. People really do need to come out and and see it and see that mountain range that surrounds yeah. it. It's I agree. Superb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you? <Absolutely. laughs> yeah. And also the night walk, you've got to do that too, <laughs> even just to see the stars out here too. Yeah. And you know, the other the other thing that's in there we didn't mention is echidna, which a lot of people know about echidnas and they see them, but you know, the echidnas that we've had up there, some of them will even come down and sniff your feet. Yeah. Sometimes you have to avoid the wildlife rather than the wildlife avoid you. <laughs> 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 Mate, thanks again. Thank you. And no guys, worries, guys, thank you for listening.